Hi, this is Bianca Stone. I wanted to announce that the new iterant Poems for the Animal, Issue 11, Spring 2023 issue, is live. On there we have poems by Brian Henry, Matthew Rohr, Terry and Guyon, Paige Taggart, and many more. You can see it all at iterant.org for free, and you can also subscribe to receive exclusive full-color print editions and special offers. If you're listening to this podcast when it airs on May 2nd, 2023, I want you to know that I'll be doing a podcast next week talking about the in-person poetry and consciousness retreat called The Unconscious Speaks with my co-collaborator Candace Jensen and I am happy to answer any questions you may have about this retreat and you can email me at bianca at ruthstonehouse.org or you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram. This retreat will be from July 3rd to 9th, so one week, in East Calais, Vermont, and it's limited to 10 people. This week-long in-person writing retreat will be a collaborative exploration of poetry and psyche through conversations of craft, daily workshop critique, and daily yoga practice. Our goal will be to reorient exploration of consciousness through soma, body, and psyche, mind, and of course exploring where the lines are absolutely blurred between those two things. Participants will have dedicated time to read and write, as well as engage in the workshop critique of their own and others' work alternating with discussion of theory and craft. So you'll be working closely with me as your workshop instructor, Bianca Stone. And with Candace Jensen, we will all be working together on the yoga instruction daily. And we welcome all levels of experience, even no experience prior needed. You just need to be curious about what you're capable of. Our intention will be twofold. One, to increase our ability to gain access to more generative creative flow states in both writing and editing. And two, to investigate poetic, psychological, and philosophical texts that bring multifaceted insight into the powerful relationship between poetic practice and expanding consciousness. Again, if you have any questions about this, please email me. I'm happy to answer it. Applications are due on May 15th, so it's coming up. Now to today's episode. Edouard Glissant said in the beginning of his book, The Poetics of Relation, the root is unique, a stalk taking all upon itself and killing all around it. In opposition to this, he is interested in the rhizome, an enmeshed root system, a quote, network spreading either in the ground or in the air, with no predatory rootstock taking over permanently. The notion of the rhizome maintains, therefore, the idea of rootedness, but challenges that of totalitarian root. Rhizomatic thought is the principle behind what he calls the poetics of relation, in which, quote, each and every identity is extended through a relationship 
with the other. I am reminded of this in thinking about Sharif Shanahan's incredible poetry in which he is interested in the conversation around the return to roots, not as a static finality of identity, but to discover the potential space in which new growth may occur. What does the self need then, he asks, to root, to deepen itself? You are already a ripening freak. Why this urge still yet to choose? Sharif's poems are filled with metaphysical longing and stunning insight into the psyche, and always they link to the idea of conversation with the other. In his work, the self is not immutable, but one that is learning to inhabit its many voices. As he writes in Fig Tree, I am trying to say something about being varied expressions of the very same thing. I believe that what we're trying to reach in lyric poetry is the ineffable. We're being brought back to a place that is egoless, where we can momentarily return to that oneness, which I think is just a constant behind the social world. And that, to me, is the most motivating aspect of experiencing a poem, of wanting to make poems. Because my material, my subjects, at least at this stage in my life and my development as a poet, are really to do with human divisiveness. Trying to create an art that would be an antidote to those issues in the way that they're unifying feels important to me. Welcome to the Odin Psyche podcast. I'm Bianca Stone, and I'm talking today with the poet Sharif Shanahan. Shanahan is the author of the poetry collection Into Each Room We Enter Without Knowing, a Lambda Literary Award and Publishing Triangles Tom Gunn Award finalist. His work has appeared in American Poetry Review, The Nation, The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Paris Review, PBS NewsHour, and Poetry Magazine. He's received fellowships from the NEA, the Stegner Fellowship Program, the Fulbright Commission, an assistant professor of English and creative writing at Northwestern University. Sharif lives in Chicago, Illinois. Today, we are talking about his most recent collection, just out from Tin House Books, Trace Evidence. And happy, happy um, uh, press siblings here. Um, I love that. So Trace Evidence is an urgent follow-up to his award-winning debut into each room we enter without knowing, wherein Sharif Shanahan continues his piercing meditations on the intricacies of mixed race identity, queer desire, time, mortality, and the legacies of anti-blackness in the U.S. and abroad. At the collection center sits on the overnight to Agadir, a poem that chronicles Shanahan's survival of a devastating bus accident in Morocco, his mother's birth country, and ruminates on home, belonging, and the mysteries of fate. With rich lyricism, power, and tenderness, trace evidence centers the racial periphery and excavates the vestiges of our violent colonial past in the most intimate aspects of our lives. In a language yoked equally to the physical and metaphysical worlds, the poet articulates the need we all share for real intimacy and connection, 
and proves time and again that the true cost of our separateness is the love that our survival requires. Sheree Shanahan, I'm thrilled and welcome uh, to welcome you to the Odin Psyche podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be. I'm really happy to be here and honored. Thank you. Yes, I wanted to start where you started in the book, actually, um, with a quote with a quote by Fanon. I believe in the possibility of love. That is why I endeavor to trace its imperfections, its perversions. Mm-hmm. The first poem um, that follows this quote is called Colonialism. And it serves as a kind of prom or prologue to the whole rest of the book, I feel, and stands apart. Um, and there really is a contained scene of a memory that haunts the rest of the collection. So I was thinking that we could read this poem and talk a bit about the structure of beginning in love. Okay. That sounds delightful. I am really happy to be here with you. I'm so happy <laughs> so, to be here with you. Let me just say that. Okay. All right. Let me get in poem mode. Let the All love right. begin. Colonialism. At intersections, I knew to look both ways as she had taught me, as she had known to look both ways at the port of arrival, not to Ellis Island or to JFK, but to the white blanket of my father, then back to her mother and away. So that when the single summer we returned to the land she had left and the four of us, she, myself, my two tanned brothers, stood below the open Casablanca sun, waiting on a thinly grassed divider for a sliver to form within the traffic, the air smart and nearly visible as neighbor boys pointed down from windows, Marikani, Marikani. And I dashed through the exhaust of four lanes, not exactly a highway, but still too wide to be crossing and without a crosswalk, no less. She rushed to the other side and slapped my backside hard. Elesh, mon fille, why would you do that to me? So beautiful. So such a good opening for the book. Um, I felt like here was, you know, it felt like with the title, with the opening Fanon quote, with this poem, that it was as if it was the first contained memory of the, as a, as a kind of evidence, this evidence traced back to where Mm -hmm. love's imperfections manifested. Mm -hmm. Um, So the mother's admonishment of the child's transgression, Mm -hmm. that's what we see, right? So, Mm -hmm. but what we learn is there's more underneath this Mm -hmm. seemingly simple, well, as a a mother myself, I understand, um, I understand this sort of like punishment out of like fear. Um, So sort of like beginning uh, right, this caution, this punishment that will have deeper implications as we move forward in the book. And two, I was so struck by this, right, this child's, right, to start with the child speaker escaping the mother, running away from mm-hmm. her, 
um, paradoxically, whereas in other parts of the book, and really what haunts the book is this tension between trying to escape her mm-hmm. and trying to find her. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess, right, so then, and then this slapping at the end, mm-hmm. followed then by this quote, a sense of shame is the beginning of integrity um, by Mencius. So, you know, a lot of things I'm bringing up and it's brought up by this poem, but I'm interested as someone, I guess someone familiar with shame um, uh, and the mother, but this idea that shame is the beginning of integrity, as I feel too that shame can lessen the truth or can shut down integrity, um, yet it speaks so much to something that must be seen and must be confronted. Um, and, you know, up against this, this, you know, sandwiched, you know, you're sort of sandwiching it between shame and love, this first poem. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Gorgeous. Give it, give it to us. Yeah, gorgeous. Um, thank you for that, Bianca. Um, when I was putting the manuscript together, I spoke about colonialism as the opening poem with a reader that I really respect and whose opinion I really respect. And their response was, well, the mother, the poem closes with what the mother would say, would kind of expectedly say in such a circumstance. And so uh, it felt to this person whose opinion I respect that the poem maybe needed to do more work, whether it was an opening or not right, that there was something absent from the poem that was essential to uh, its its comprehensibility and the work that it could do. And I sat with that for a really long time because my intuition said no. My intuition said with the lens of colonialism, you know, through the title, we are not only invited, but kind of instructed and required to consider the scene within that lens or through that lens. And what would have been done to the mother, you know? Um, Would you do that to me, you know, is pointing in the direction of what the mother would have lost beyond her child or through the loss of her child, Um, which opens up, I think it anticipates what we see later in the book in section one specifically, but it's the tether that the mother figure has through the child to whiteness and uh, to the escape um, that the mother herself is performing. I mean, we've, we talked about the child's escape and the departure, but the mother figure, you know, the single summer we've returned, right? This is the one time it happened. Right. And there are three children, you know, so there's been some time. And the, the mother too has escaped her origins in some way. and. Uh, the lighter skinned children, their embodiment are kind of the manifestation of that escape. And that was the thing. It was the, her child who she loved, of course, and who she, she wants to see have a vibrant life and to see thrive. But it was also the kind of pernicious, sinister um, undertone of something else that might have been uh, lost to the mother through the loss of the child. That's and, so interesting. Yeah. Cool. I mean, the implications are very upsetting. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and I think it's, I think it's like a both and thing, you know, this reader friend was like, 
you know, but that's what a mother would say. So I don't understand, like, what's found out? Like, what's revealed about this scene? It's a transcription of the scene. Well, and ironically, I, that's, yeah. I feel like that's what's provoking about it is that there's mm -hmm. some, there feels like all this weight behind it because yep. it feels like a common response that a mother would have, of course. And I feel like the only time I've ever felt like hitting my child was when I was really scared that she was mm -hmm. going to get like hit by a car, you know, yeah. uh, and wasn't listening, that kind of thing. Right. So, um, but Right. But but what we can sense already is there's something more at work. It's, you know, it's, I think especially with that quote and with the title colonialism mm -hmm. um, that that I think it's, it's just interesting because it's exactly the sort of anxiety that you had about the line and the talking with the reader that you had about was it working or not working. Mm -hmm. I think that that sort of imperfection of the line is like what makes the line work so well for me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I, I love that. And, and the sandwiching it between those two quotations, you know, I love, I love thinking about it in that way, you know, cause when I was shaping the book, I thought, okay, well, the Fanon quote is, you know, the entry point. Um, and we're already past it by the time we begin the first section, but, there is a very clear way in which that poem is physically sandwiched between the notions of love and yeah. shame. And I think the Mencius quote for me is really, I agree with you that shame would obstruct integrity. Totally. You know, and that's someone who is shame spiraling. But here's this ancient genius philosopher. So what is this? It must mean something. <laughs> exactly. It's like I, you know, someone who's in like shame spiraling or in a state of shame, you know, existentially, like shame for me is an existential orientation to experience, yeah. you know, it's, it's like the filter through which anything would be known or perceived or understood by the person in that position. And I think what I'm trying to do or what my intention anyway was with that, uh, that epigraph was to demonstrate the ways in which um, the individual speakers myself in my own life uh, had the circumstances that generated the shame, you know, were finally not involved with the process of releasing it. And that having been made to feel shame, having been made to feel, which is to say like not guilt, right? Which is having done wrong, but believing one is wrong, right? Believing one is defective is the shame that it necessitates a self-inquiry if one is going to heal and be whole about why the shame has come to be, right? right. And how to root it from, from one's psyche, if that is even possible. And yeah. I think it's that journey of looking at the shame one has come to be marked by um, in the face, understanding the circumstances that have generated it so as to get out from under them, you mm -hmm. know, to, mm -hmm. to release oneself. and. Um, I want to believe that Mencius would argue that there are other conduits to integrity, <laughs> but that, yeah. but that shame okay. takes, the shame, shame is the conduit to that. If we're going to pursue it, like if we're going to pursue okay. the shame and try to understand it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, and who knows the context really, I mean, maybe you do, but like there's different contexts of shame, right? So maybe there are some appropriate times to feel shame and that's the beginning mm -hmm. of you feeling integrity, but I think 
what, you know, after reading this book and thinking about what is actually going on here, that it seems more an issue of like projected identification, you know, like, Mm -hmm. or like made to feel shame for something that you, that is not your problem. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, and in, in that way, there is a double irony, right there in, in using this quote is that in realizing that, I guess Mm -hmm. that would be the beginning of finding integrity. Um, which is so honest, right? So I love that so much. Um, and I was also thinking, I mean, it's so honest to feel your shame, right? So you have it. There's nothing you can, you know, if, you, if, mm-hmm. if that's what you're in. Um, the first step is just acknowledging it. Um, yeah. The second poem, mm-hmm. um, I feel like I loved it so much because it was this reminder um, as we move into the book of the limitations of language um, and the way when we speak of something, it always in some ways narrows it. And why do we feel this almost unbearable need to speak what has been done to us and for it to be understood in a certain way. Um, not what just has been done to us, but just the circumstances mm-hmm. of one's life that are painful, right? And mm-hmm. suffering and love are so intricately linked. Um, so I, I was thinking about, I think we should probably read the poem. Okay. Yeah. And then you want me to do that now? Yeah. Okay. I'll do yeah, that. Yeah, go first. ahead. Okay. Mulatto quadroon somewhere between. I want to tell you what for me it has been like. To speak at all, I must occupy a position in a system whose positions I appear not to occupy. Though some say such non-position is my position, speak from that placeless place outside the system, etc., some would say and have said. If the placeless place is created by terms of the system, then it must be within the system, even if it appears otherwise. And so it may be that the position presumed to be of body might better be regarded as a position of thought or a receptivity to possible experience as conceived by the still implausible eye of a man who defined the flimsy self he carried against those whom he did not understand or know or in any real sense see. And if the possible vision of that implausible eye accounted for you in name only, then filed you under consequence, side effect. It is not that the system fails to position you, it positions you actively and specifically nowhere, so that you appear on the outside, but remain within. Or you appear within, but remain on the outside. Which is to say, in other words, apart and a part. And so 
if to speak in a particular social world, I must occupy a position and that world consists of positions that are clear, but none of which clearly I occupy, then it may be that I cannot, even if I want to, tell you what for me it has been like. And so. So again, thinking about this idea of needing to occupy a position and to get it right. And it made me think even like it begs the question, what would that even, what would that mean if you did do that? Mm -hmm. Like where would that, where would you end up if you achieved that in a, especially in a poem, right? Um, Again, I think of this idea of like narrowing of, of um, of not being able to explore further ideas of self. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking, of course, situated in this poem, um, right? So, so in a way, this this idea of not getting it right, mm-hmm. um, that it leaves space. Right. For the reader, possibly. Right. So, I mean, I, you tell me, you tell me like in, in putting this poem so early in the book, second, like, um, and, you know, adopting this, uh, there's this push and pull of this, this voice of the knower, the academic sort of voice, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and sort of leaving it unfinished in the end without a punctuation mark at the end. Um, I don't know. Just talk to me about this poem. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I think, I think what I, I, it was very clear to me that this poem needed to be very early on in the book and it was possibly going to be the opening poem in that right. earlier conversation I referred to about, uh, you know, talking with that reader about colonialism, you know, and what I came to see is really important to the book was that Morocco as the origin of the blackness within this family and of the identity questions that the son and the mother were navigating was really essential to the comprehension of the book and the kind of work that the book was doing and could do at its best. And starting with Mulatto Quadroon somewhere between Americanized the experience in through the language of racial U.S. American racial taxonomy Mm. um, in a way that is foundational, but not the font. It's not the source of it all, you know? And that was another argument for myself to put colonialism at top, you know? And, you know, the the placement of Mulatto Quadroon somewhere between as the opening poem of the first section was important to me, not only because it established racial liminality and a kind of instability of a racialized experience, which is inside all of the poems, even when the subjects, the subjects of the poems are apparently otherwise, you know, even when the poems don't contain necessarily a racial marker, right? right? That that liminality is a constant. And you know, part of what's important to me, I think, you know, within this poem, but really just within the work that I'm trying to do through my poetry, Bianca, is to convey to folks who, there can be an assumption 
that racialized experiences such as my own or, you know, to keep it about the work, such as the speaker's experiences in the book, you know, is kind of a theoretical thing, you know, that it, we can understand it theoretically, but in terms of its lived impact, it's hard to really reckon with how it would be a meaningful thing to foreground or center, you know, Mm -hmm. especially because when we think about race and racialization, it more often than not is through, you know, within a kind of contemporary uh, racial politics uh, kind of way, it's in, it's very often through the lens of privilege, you know, and what privileges are conferred by lighter skin tone, by whiteness, and, uh, you know, what privileges are not, you know, what, um, what dangers or risks, you know, folks are opened up to um, by being further away from, from whiteness. And I would never suggest that any of that isn't real, urgent, true, like the first priority, like, of course, for me, it's about expanding narrative, like expanding the narrative and uh, integrating other narratives, right? That there are as many racialized experiences happening in a room as there are people in that room, because the only prerequisite to being racialized is having a body, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. so for me, you know, for me, it was important. And that, that was really the, um, I could say more about this later if you want, but those considerations of how to demonstrate the way that this subject position has real abiding constitutive impact was a guiding question and really at the genesis of the third section that I could say a bit more about. But for this poem, it was important to establish racial liminality from jump and then also the ways in which that influenced language, you know, which is the tool through which we relate you know, primarily. I mean, it's it's my interest to demonstrate the ways in which the interpersonal is complicated by all of this and how we... That's a big theme in the book, yeah. Yeah, you know, and how we can be made unknowable to one another by the systems that we live inside of and that we're navigating. And so... So um, is it the... the are, are you saying that the language of the discourse of the racialization is limiting to like you and I sitting here talking about it, like as a uh, one person's lived experience, like mm-hmm. that the, that the lane, there's almost like a lack of language of a very personalized experience that is very real right now. Or is that what you're trying to do in the book? Right. Yeah, I, mean, I think you are right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I mean to do that in the book and I, I think that the, the the it's the lack of a name really and not not being able not being legible within a particular social context mm-hmm. not having a name not being accounted for within a particular social context mm-hmm. inherently impacts one's relationship to language in my belief right that if we if we don't see ourselves reflected in the language that we are living inside of and using uh, to navigate the interpersonal social world, that that has a foundational constitutive impact. And so there's something that that has done to an individual in that subject position before another person even enters the room and the possibility of interface presents itself, you know, that there's already, there's already impact 
you know, mm. that um, impact actually feels insufficient as a word, because again, it feels constitutive. It feels like really formative and of the essence of that individual. And so it's less, it's less to me about, you know, the language that's available to me and you to talk about these issues mm-hmm. than it is about the way that language shapes one's consciousness mm-hmm. and one's self-concept, you know, and that the language we're inside of, the, the world is filtered through it. We are filtered through it. You know, the, if you just, if you, if you reduce the world to two individuals who share a language, which has language for one of them and not the other, Mm-hmm. There's already a marked difference in what those experiences are going to be. Of course, of course, the world is more complicated than that. I'm just offering up that um, that example. Well, yeah. I, I'm interested in this idea. Yeah. But I I think it's complex. Um, but right. I, <laughs> and so I tread lightly. But I, but I, you know, I think the conversation between two people, um, with difference, right? Different different mm-hmm. language, you know, and we've. So uh, what I'm sort of interested in and what I see you doing in this book, I think, is by having the conversation anyway, a sort of poesis happens where what was not there before starts to become there before, right? So in a way, like, would one create a new, create language out of, what's missing right so mm-hmm. something is it sounds like what you're saying is something very big is important is missing in language mm-hmm. and um and it's personal right so like mm-hmm. the personal like one's personal consciousness has been filtered through a certain kind of language and something is missing in what is needed to become and made in other words <laughs> you know it kind of reflects like it, it totally goes back to the parents too because it seems mm-hmm. like parents put upon us who who we are and our idea of the world is filtered through them and our idea of ourself is filtered through them and they tell us who we are and so much and so much damage can be done there so so much work needs to be done later on if you're even if, if aware that you need to do it mm-hmm. um not just sort of drowning in this like confusion um about like who you are in the world which is yeah um which of course many of us just do but some of us are like wait a minute what Mm -hmm. if um what if i start building out you know what what are the limits to consciousnesses um capabilities to create a language that is needed to fill this space um Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, I, and I, I think the the limitations of language in this particular context are to do with a racial hierarchy and mm-hmm. the taxonomy associated with a racial system, you know, that the speaker is inside of and, and meditating on. And it, it could be about, within that context, it could be about generating new language that would account for more of us. Mm-hmm. And it might also be that the inability or the limitations of the language is really just symptomatic of 
the limitations of the structure and its imagination and its conceptualization and that finding a way to live outside of it, which is an impossibility in this world at this moment, in my belief, yeah, might actually be, you know, a way forward. Yeah. You know, the, um, the possibilities of self-concept are for, there are so many possibilities of self-concept that are foreclosed by the insistence of the system, its unavoidability, and the language that uh, upholds it or expresses it. You know, mm-hmm. there was something that you said earlier that I wanted to respond to, which was the, um, like the knowing of the poem and like the academic kind of thinking, Yeah. you know, what was really important to me with that poem too, was the opening gesture of, I want to tell you what for me it has been like, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I want to connect with you. I want you to know me and see me and I want to see you in turn. Mm-hmm. And then we're dropped into this meditation because there's somehow a limitation to that. There's somehow some obstacle. And I hope by the time we get to the end of the poem, we do understand a little bit more of what it has been like for the speaker, you know, but in this Well, we're also prepared to know more, you know, like the, I think by the end of the book, you know, this, this poem is, is, is the beginning. I wanted to talk a little bit about biography, right? So we've been talking around it a lot so far. So um, in your professional bio, you often begin talking about your origins, born in the Bronx, 1983, to an Irish-American father and a Moroccan mother. Mm-hmm. It got me thinking about how really we are all sourced, of course, from two different people born of the dyad. Um and for some of us, there's a lifetime of trying to understand the, the self in relation to those original dyads and negotiating difference and sameness, um, wanting something same but different. Yet for you, there is this um, very marked, heightened complication with this historic difference mm-hmm. in that there's the physical difference between the parents, one is white and one is black, complicated further as you explore in the poems by the mother's personal dyad between Arab and black African, both Mm -hmm. of which she seems to have issues with acknowledging as a place of identity, which you explore in the title poem, Trace Evidence. So in thinking about dyads and two-ness, I found it telling, too, that you studied comparative literature, which is, of course, the study of two or more li- two or more pieces of literature. And it also you studied business, which seems a natural opposite to studying poetry. Yeah. Also, throughout the book, you explore the mind-body dichotomy, that old um, traditional dyad that has prompted so much philosophical and spiritual and scientific, of course, debate. Um, and you started right away, right, with this um, Mulatto Condrun, uh, sorry, Quadrun, with that double um, colon in the middle. Mm-hmm. And these are two terms, right? So can you talk to me about your interest in, compar- your interest in comparison or, or how that sparks the creativity for you, um, mm-hmm. this contrast? Yeah. Um, you know, what's funny about the comparative literature reference is that when you said that, I immediately remembered uh, an essay that I, like my personal statement 
essay for grad school before the MFA. I did a terminal master's in comparative literature and literary translation. And the opening line was, I am a comparatist by birth. Oh, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know? Well, yeah, Which is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's and all, that, Yeah, that's what it felt like. You can... It's just, it's been like a, it's just been necessary work. It's been uh, a skill, I guess, of survival, you know, mm. um, understanding that I am of two worlds, you know, in a way we all are, you know, as you say, and we don't, you know, it's, it's not, it's maybe particularly charged in, in some instances than it is in others, you know, but there's emerging always happening, I guess. And, you know, for me, it was really about a kind of developmental um, place finding, you know, and uh, mirrors, you know, like an absence of mirrors, you know, um, within each of the given contexts, there weren't exactly I wasn't exactly mirrored in, in each of the given context, the cultural national context of each of my parents, you know? And so there was a third space that was harder to inhabit mm -hmm. because harder to language, but also just really lonely, mm. you know, nobody, yeah. no, you know, there's no guarantee necessarily that they're going to be other people with you in that third space. How many Irish Moroccans are there on the earth? My brothers and I are right. three of them and possibly, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, right. Like, so, so the, there was, there was an, there was an isolation, you know, inside that, you know, that I think also just required me to look really hard at my life, you know, to really look hard at the world around me, you know, and I think that's work that certainly anybody who's, you know, undergone serious therapy or analysis has done and that we might come to through different vehicles. And for me, it was the cultural inheritance. For me, it was race specifically and being in a bicultural home that required me to kind of look at the surface of things and try to understand what what was true beneath them and you know what kind of essential quality um, I might be able to connect to and root myself inside of um, because that must be available to all of us we're all here and the social world is constructed I'm not I'm not saying it's not important or real it's the first level of human experience you know yeah. but it's constructed and so there's got to be something in my belief, there's got to be something beneath that that is available to all of us. And for, for me, trying to find that thing was looked like the comparison. Like it, it looked like, you know, mother and father, but also, as you say, my mother's story, you know, and what her immigration to the United States meant. Uh, for the ways in which she was racialized and the expectations that were put on her and her body and how those differed from her own self-concept. Mm -hmm. And so the the Arab identity for her is, is really uncontentious. That is where she, she lives, resides, that feels psychologically, that feels great to her, you know. Um, there, there's clearly the impact of colonial, you know, the layers of, of empire in the North of Africa and specifically French occupation for her, 
as someone who was francophone and educated at French schools, at least in part, you know, but the, the question I think really for me that emerged at some point in my childhood was about the ways in which she herself disrupted the system that I was being socialized in and through. And so I am U.S. American. I, like everybody here, I'm being breastfed on U.S. American racism. The pathology is alive and well inside all of us. We're passing it around. It's being mm. cultivated. Yusef calls it, Yusef Kumanyaka calls it a cultivated schizophrenia. Oh. And I have loved, <laughs> I oh, heard him that say is... that years, years ago in an, in an interview. And so, yeah. you know, I'm being, I'm born and reared inside of that, you yeah. know? And so there's a conceptualization of race and of embodiment that is U.S. American by virtue of my being U.S. American. And my mother, um, you know, is what one might call quote unquote black presenting, but does not identify as such. Right. And so it was the way that she, oh. it was less for me. I have a white dad and a black mom and I'm caught in the middle or so, or something, right? It was more about the ways in which she disrupted the whole thing. Right. And so then what did that mean She's for me? She's disavowing this identity that, and, may, and in a way saying there's something bad about it that in that way, but you're of her, so of this too. So it's Ex confusing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think the thing that, I came to see, and that is really important to me, just kind of um, morally almost, mm -hmm. when talking about her story is that I don't think, I don't think it's a, it's a situation, I don't think it's accurate to say that she is denying a part of herself, okay. you know? I think I used to use that language and I used to think it like, year, like 15 years ago, like half a life ago. Yeah, it's forever. Um, you know, like I maybe, I think I did use that language, but I think it's like more accurate to say that she is who she is, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and her self-concept is her self-concept and a consequence of the culture of origin, the country of origin, the language of origin. I think English was her fifth language, actually. Yeah. So the the terms that I'm using to to talk about my own experience in my own life are very different if only for linguistic reasons, but you know, that she, she developed a sense of self based on that context and the identity markers that were germane to her experience there were Arab, Muslim, Moroccan woman, eventually mother. And she has the right to tell us who she is. It's that there's a part of the cultural inheritance that means less in her culture of origin and co context of origin than it does here in the United States where, it, where race, yeah, where race and body is foregrounded, right. you know? Um, and so the centrality that that portion of our cultural inheritance is necessarily going to have for me as a U U.S. American is not consistent with what it means for her. And it's that dissonance that I'm really interested in. Like, I'm not interested in blame, you know, mm -hmm. or like pointing the finger, like you're denying this and it's me. And so you're denying me. Although that might, that could be a part of it, but I think it's, I think it's just a little, uh, it's a little more complicated. I think it's like a little more nuanced than that. 
Yeah. And that understanding that was actually an arrival for me right. because it required me to see outside of my own uh, acculturation and the limitations of it. So what all this points towards for me is that why poetry? You know, why is poetry a unique situation in which to explore these things? Yeah. I believe uh, that what we're trying to reach in lyric poetry is the ineffable. I'm in that camp, right? Where yeah. it's like, what is unlanguageable and how the, the poem can bring us to that space. And we know that it's happening because we feel it in our bodies. We're having an experience that mm -hmm. we can't exactly convey um, in the way that you and I are talking to one, an one another right now. And what I believe about that experience, which, you know, I, th I think for me is kind of definitional, you know, a definitional experience of lyric poetry, but it's probably the same in profound experiences of any art, is that we are returning to an initial state of being, you know, and I'm speaking about my personal belief, like I understand that, you know, folks might disagree that philosophers have different takes on it. For me, what I believe is that we are all born into a state of oneness and that that is actually the truth <laughs> yeah. of what's happening on this rock that we're all doing our best to navigate and that we are um, kind of partitioned out of that into personhood, mm. you know, like into like we are named and gendered and raced and countryed and languaged and we back to that dyad right back to that two-ness like we yeah. were one made two and then once we're two then we then we have to negotiate that and yes. a little bit yeah yeah you know yeah. and and my you know my my pointing that out in my belief as a belief of mine is not to critique it like how how could we live in the world without sharif and bianca Mm -hmm. talking right now like how could this happen without the facts or the ideas of yeah you know but that that it is a made thing you know and that there is something before it and yeah what i think about engagement with the ineffable and the way that i've come to understand it is that we're being brought back to a place that is egoless where we can momentarily return to that oneness, which I think is just a constant behind the social world. And we can't really live there. We can't inhabit it. Like w the poem drops us out of it. And then, you know, maybe it lingers for a minute and a half if we're lucky. We'll be thinking about it, but that yeah. experiencing it, you know, is- It's so brief. And it's so brief, right? <laughs> it's like you, you well, like I think Martin Buber says is like you like glimpse the eternal, but but you cannot exist in that state, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, and so that is the thing that I'm interested in. That to me is the most motivating aspect of experiencing a poem, of wanting to make poems, and I think because my material, my subjects, at least at this stage in my life and my development as a poet are really to do with human divisiveness and the ways in which we've separated ourselves as a species. You know, some of the ways in which we've done that are really positive and necessary. And, you know, I don't mean to pathologize uh, the ways in which we are separate, 
but that obviously some of the ways in which we've divided ourselves are rooted in hate and fear. And so because those are important questions to me, you know, trying to create an art that regardless of its subject, regardless of whether or not I'm taking those questions up as subjects, would be an antidote to those issues, right? Yeah. And the way that they're unifying feels important to me. Yeah. And the the having felt like there wasn't a language um, to really convey me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, and also, you know, just kind of in a more personal, familial sort of way that there, there wasn't really a lot of communication around these questions. There wasn't a lot of discussion around them in my home because they were so complicated that that right. for me generated uh, a need to speak yeah. in language, you know? Right. So I think it's for all those reasons that it's poetry for me. That's so beautiful. I love Thanks. that. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of, um, of being seen in a certain way is so need you know needing to be seen in a certain way or being seen in a certain way it's so painful yet understandable and i've been thinking so much lately about how the poet uh is both extremely vulnerable and exposed right and writing about these extremely personal um conflicts and feelings and yet has such a desire to be hidden too, right? So, and does effectively hide in the poem. Um, so I, I loved so much in the poem, self-determination with the question of race, you write suddenly in such a stark, honest statement, I just want to live. Mm. And then the ending of the poem, if you need me, if you need an eye that is yours. Mm. It got me thinking about your use of pronouns in the book. And I recently spent some time reading Matthew Zapruder's new memoir. And in it, he says, a pronoun can be launched out to unknown readers, not in easy assumption, but in desperate hope of solidarity and connection. Hmm. Yet I found too in your book, that this uncertainty and fungibility of pronouns within a single poem points to an unsure stance of wanting to be seen in one way. So mm-hmm. you say so beautifully in the, uh, in the poem Worthiness, speaking to you here like this is the most difficult thing I can do. Mm-hmm. So I, I, how much intention or you know this idea about the poet um, breaking the rules of grammar in a way to wield these certain powers and how over time they learn to wield them more surely and what in this book maybe if you have any thoughts about any of this yeah I love that um, I was really looking forward to this conversation because you're such a sensitive insightful reader so thank you for these questions (laughs) um so the people who can't see what just happened bianca got really uncomfortable when i compliment her (laughs) i i mean i hear you um thank you for that question bianca i yeah i've got i got a couple things to say about that i think um 
there's a way that the self-address, particularly when the pronouns are, when the pronoun in the poem is you as I, which is a gesture we see, you know, often, I think, and we can identify that in a lot of people's work, that there's a, a safety almost in that, you know, mm-hmm. that there's a distancing between the singing voice or the self that is making the poem and the you who is a part of the self making the poem, but is named as separate, at least within the context of the poem, that there's a, a safety and maybe a comfort in that. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, I think also, and this is like my belief that we are all one, <laughs> you know, and I, I laugh. I really, with every cell of my body, I believe it, but I laugh because yeah, look same. at the world, look at the world I and know. how, how could that be true? You know? Right. Um, but the way that understandably folks would be resistant to such an idea, I think this is also another one of those where I genuinely believe that the Sharif, the self that joined this video call with you 54 minutes ago is not the self speaking to you right now. Mm, like I, I genuinely that. believe that. Yeah. And that, that there's a constant exchange of ener- energy. And I'm actually, I'm tearing up a little bit because I'm a deeply feeling person, but because I felt you feel what I said, mm-hmm. like I didn't see resistance actually, mm-hmm. which is typically what I see no, when I say I, that. And then I teared up. Because yeah. I was like, oh, fuck, wait, no, there's no resistance to the yeah. idea, yeah. you know, that there's a constant exchange of energy and idea and influence and, you know, that that changes us. And it doesn't necessarily need to be like a constitutive, fundamental, you know, epiphanic change that it right. could just be like three micro steps in this direction, you yeah. know, but that the perspective from which voice is emerging has shifted a little bit, you know, like, and I can, I can really concretize that like two questions ago, I think we were talking about Mulatto Quadroon. I said, I was trying to explain my point about the absence of a language to name a particular person. And I was like, if we cut away everything, and then there were just these two people using the same language and one person had a name in that language. And then one person didn't, there was something inside that moment that passed between us and a lot of that must have been projection on my part i don't even know if it was a moment that registered for you right but where something in me began to shift where it was like well i believe that but i actually think i need to sit with that for longer so that Mm -hmm. i can more effectively communicate what i mean to say Mm -hmm. and it was a moment that happened completely invisibly to you i think and privately but you were the conduit to that moment Mm -hmm that you were the interlocutor, you specifically responding in the way that you were responding, whatever I was projecting onto you is mine, but you were there. And so that, you know, and now when we, when we're done, I'm going to think about that a little bit more, you know? And so I guess I I don't mean to move away from the question, but I I, I love that so much. I I, I don't mean to, to, to steal your, answer either right now but like i just i i feel like responding but i okay (laughs) just that i i i think i i love what you're saying but because i think there's something about us talking and the sort of unfolding of the conversation where it's like 
you don't need to know everything about what you're saying when you're saying it, right? So if you're not the same person you are at the beginning of the conversation as mm -hmm. you are now, the person you are now can reflect back on what that mm -hmm. person was saying before and know more, but we had to get here together, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yes. And the person I am now, thanks to you in this conversation, knows to look back at that. Yeah. And <laughs> you know? I know to say to, to say this, because of you, I say, I say yeah. You know, and so I think there's part so of it much is uncertainty. That... I'm sorry, there's just no, no, there's, go ahead. There's in just a, a truckload of uncertainty at work, right? At, at yes. first, right? So it's like withstanding that with you, and then just like being curious and like okay with our imperfections of language, and that we're figuring mm -hmm. it out together. Yeah, that's yes, yeah. You know, and I, I think I, I really believe that, and so I think you know, kind of concretely in the making of, of the poems, it's like, it's not even necessarily protective, you know, or uh, a, a way to get some distance from the subject. It's actually the most accurate. Right, right. No, it's, <laughs> to me, yeah. it's like, actually, I need to speak to you because the, yeah. it, it would be a lie if I said I, because I am yeah. no longer there, you know? Right. And, and I, I think too, I think, you know, also when you're, when you're writing about when you're clearly writing, I think we're all probably writing out of our life. And even if we try to get away from it, and perhaps especially when we try to get away from our life, so true. our life is most stitched inside the thing we make, you yeah. know? And, you know, so it's like, but I think it's like, especially when you're writing so clearly autobiographically, so clearly out of your own life, I think the assumption that people can have is that wherever the speakers and the poems are is where you were recently, you know, or mm. where you maybe still are, yeah. you know? And I feel years away from where some of the speakers in these poems are, you know, mm. because the expression of these uh, experiences, these questions of race, identity, existential questions, you know, um, are ongoing and, uh, material that I'm engaging in my life in ways that have nothing to do with poems, mm -hmm. you know, and that I'm growing and evolving and healing and learning, yeah. you know, um, in a way that maybe has poems as byproduct, yeah. you know, yeah. like, yeah. you know, but like not transcription at all. No, of course not. Like it's at all, else. you know? No, yeah. You know? So that, it's like, I think, you know, Worthiness, the final poem in the book is an example. Like I wrote that in 2020, okay, you know, yeah. the summer that Mr. George Floyd was executed and the feelings inside that are kind of abiding emotional states, you know, mm -hmm. for, for me, yeah. you know? But, but I'm, I wouldn't say that that's where I am. You know, I would say that even that I is no longer I. Well, there's a sense too that after you write the poem, you've sort of given up, given over this mm -hmm. this part of mm -hmm. yourself, and it's in our, it sort of like sets sail out of you, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. um, it's almost, it's strange to look back at poems, you know, and you see yeah. you see things you didn't see before. Mm -hmm. You think, oh, I've, I'm so different now, yet you recognize, of course, that self. But that, too, of course, there's this giving over of the poem to, to the world, to the reader, to mm -hmm. whatever. So it's, 
it's like a child. It's like of you, but mm-hmm. not you. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Of you, but not you is yeah. a line. And I use that exact phrase in a, in a poem called Dear Whiteness, which is, is maybe, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's maybe going to be the third book of poems. It's uh, like a, what I'm imagining it as uh-huh. now is a book length epistolary poem to whiteness like to the racial category not to white people but to whiteness right and the a portion of it was I wonder if I have it here was published like years ago by LA Review of Books like I was working on Trace Evidence and I knew that whatever this was was separate from the Trace Evidence project but there's a part where the speaker is speaking to whiteness and Uh it says the speaker says you know um like the privilege is a fact for which I resent you. Mm-hmm. I am of you, but not you. Mm. On my mind, but not in my mind. Oh, <laughs> and you just took me back there. You just took me back yeah. to that poem. Wow. You know what, what that says to me? That says to me that after we finish, whenever we wrap up, I should go back and look at that poem and maybe see what I got on my computer and work on it for a little bit. So. Yeah, I think the the this the signs the spirits are are pointing <laughs> towards it. I w- let's read a poem. What's okay? Sure. Um, was there one you wanted to hear? I have favorites, um, okay. of course, but um, that one's kind of long though. Um, well, I loved psychotherapy. It's short. Um, okay. But I, and I also, one poem, I really, 37th year. Okay. Um, as well. Uh, okay. You want me to do those too? Yeah. All right. Psychotherapy. For all the years you have yourself submitted to this process, energetically at first, then incredulously exhausted. It may be all you needed to hear. You heard in the very first office, the one with the plastic gladiolus flanked by coiling plants on the table beneath the light switch. Abandoned is not a feeling. It's an interpretation of events. So much negative capability in that poem. <laughs> so good. Thank you. Um, all right. Okay. Hold on. My cat is like dying. Hi, okay. cat. She stopped. All right. Ooh. 37th year. At the start of this now, <laughs> was that your cat scratching? <laughs> yeah, like I didn't hear it at first, and then, and then it got really quiet. Uh, okay, no problem for me. Um, 37th year. At the start of this narrative, I will pretend not to be alive, not to be speaking to you from the living earth, to help you. I will pretend the circumstances of our being here, together, are casual and not incidental of this awkward dilemma. How to coexist when you would like me dead. For simplicity, for lack of threat, 
In this narrative, I will look at you from a distance, as into the future, no more real than I am, sitting here in my off-white body, which I can feel, but is somehow less important, less urgent than the problem it poses. Sometimes when I write this kind of narrative, my mind flees and all I see above is text, at once strange because I don't know how to hold it and familiar because I wrote it. Send out the memo, I'm nearly done here. How much more of this life to live? 30 years, if I'm lucky, I bet. If my life ends, will my brothers finally begin? Who made my mother? Who killed my father who lives? That ending Thanks. just chills, Sharif. Thank you. Reading your book, I was reminded of how very recently I a phrase came to me in my sleep uh, very distinctly, very strongly. It was buried roots. And mm. it was so stark and on its own, and it actually woke me up. Um, and I knew it had to do with wow. where I was in my phase of psychoanalysis and in, in my own journey there. Um, and also it just, and then of course, in my own writings and thoughts and readings around all of that, just poems and whatnot. Um, and I was thinking how the phase really summed things up for me and yet at the same time held so much ambiguity and wasn't just one thing. It spoke to me on one hand of unearthing the repressed materials, of course, the past, the heretical, um, that one must uncover to see its source, its origin in, in order to cover up again, I feel like, which of course, cause roots need, to be covered, to be roots. Um, and, but it also made me think, uh, when you, when you hear the phrase buried roots, you understand something about a plant. You understand something about when you witness a plant, that there are roots beneath it that you cannot see. So it's sort of acknowledging the unseen. I thought of all this, um, I kept thinking of it throughout your book, you know, and in your in your beautiful middle poem, um, on the overnight to Agadir, that you say in the very beginning, "Don't go discover your roots," Ladybug says. If you want to go look for roots, go look at a tree. Mm -hmm. Then later in the poem, the speaker says, "A tree," but do you see its roots when you look at a tree? And mm -hmm. then later in the book another one of my favorite poems is fig tree mm. and you say what does the self need then to root to deepen itself mm -hmm. and another thread that i found throughout the book was this a, a darker thread that felt about uh wrestling with the idea of suicide and the idea to be done mm -hmm. with the whole debate right so to be mm -hmm. done with the whole uh, needing to define the self, needing to understand, needing to feel at ease in the world. And I feel like poets always deal so well with this most complicated death wish. 
um, that in a way no other genre can. But it also is a desire, of course, to go back to the original state, to that oneness, to that, mm -hmm. you know, back down into mm -hmm. the roots, to be joined the roots. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was wondering if you could tell me about, talk a bit about that long poem in the middle about going back to Morocco and that the terrible bus accident mm -hmm. and the search for roots. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Thank you for that beautiful question. Um, there's a there's a line in that poem that uh, Ladybug says, you know, you thought you were going to Morocco. She says, laughing, you were going to the body. Mm. And when a version of that moment was lived. It was met by me and by Ladybug with hysterical laughter. <laughs> I'm in a neck yeah. brace waiting yeah. for the second or third surgery on my neck. Yeah. Like right. I'm fucked up and I'm just yeah. laughing because what are you going to do in the face of such tragedy? Like right. what, what are you going to do? You know, and that you think you think you're going to pursue something and something else reveals itself. Something else, you know, shows you it was the point all along. And I think for me, you know, that, that poem, you know, I did survive a bus accident the fall of 2015. I left my job in New York and my apartment in Brooklyn. And, you know, I went for what I thought would be a year to Morocco to pursue these questions, to conduct genealogical research and to research representations of Blackness in the Maghreb, visual and literary and to have difficult conversations with people both in and out of my community in Morocco about our history and who we are as a people and um, around questions of blackness in particular that I knew many Moroccans, again, in and out of my community did not want to have. Um, and I hesitated to go. I was so thrilled that I was able, that I had the opportunity, but then for a portion of that year, I really hesitated to go because it, it's scary as hell. It was scary. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally scary. And it, it was also like, I, I somehow, I somehow knew that what the, what the year purported to be about or what I purported the year to be about was not, I already knew, like, I already knew that there would be a resistance to the questions that I was asking. Um, you mean the people, by people you were asking? Yeah, by Morocco? people there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By by the folks on the ground in my in my family, extended community there. And then, you know, also just strangers that was being through the Fulbright, you know. Okay. But, yeah. you know, and it, it, it also, it seemed like the, the, the go back to feel connected to your roots like intuitively felt to me like something that was not going to happen. Yeah. And that more time in Morocco would increase my fluency culturally, linguistically of this country from which I emerged through my mother, you know, or, you know, where one line of my people are from. But it, the way that people around me at the time were understanding this, possibility, the possibility inside this experience was about, you know, uh, kind of 
he healing a, a part of my self concept or, or bringing it into wholeness. Like there was some missing part of me that I would, I would find there by, you know, by, by being there and accessing other Moroccans and, and steeping myself in the culture and language that I was suspicious of, you know, and, you know, there's a scene at the beginning of the long poem, like maybe the third page in where a therapist says, you know, perhaps taking a Moroccan lover, ideally a black one will help you feel connected to yourself in a new way. And the speaker fires the, the shrink and says, I know exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. It's that there is no point. And then we, and then the speaker is cut off and, and Ladybug says, just go and look at a tree. I'm telling you, just go and look at a tree, you know, and that that so, was more yeah yeah tell me go ahead well i i just that was she implying like fuck like going to look for the metaphorical roots like look at a like you know you can look at a tree and you can experience yourself right now or or experience the world or what maybe in looking at a tree of course is a metaphor in itself uh look at the growth look at the thing that's come from the roots look at the rather yeah. than Yep. Or what do you think? Yeah, I think it I think it was it was find the point. Mm, find yeah. the point in the most banal mundane activity in something that you might not even think of as a special or worthwhile use of your time, you know, yeah. that the point is it sounds kind of glib and reductive. It, it sounds pat to say it this way, but the point is whatever you make it to be, you know, yeah. but that there was some essential truth to that statement, you know, yeah. and the idea that this speaker would go on a journey and suddenly return home, having a deeper comp comprehension of who he was, I understood in life and in the making of that poem was not really what this was about. And right. what it was about was something that would reveal itself to me. You know, what is it? what what is the universe either spirit god whatever you want to call it communicating to a particular individual who goes to their ancestral homeland and ends up in their childhood bedroom in the bronx like because you had to be shipped you had to be shipped back home after you were in the accident yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and so and the majority I know the of the irony that, yeah. is thick it's, it's, <laughs> it's like it's, it's like yeah. okay god i'm yeah. listening you know like what are you trying to tell me yeah. you know and that there was you know a backward looking that i maybe needed to do again mm -hmm. you know um mm -hmm. i mean there you were know, your roots too I mean, yeah yeah the roots in a different way yeah. you know and, and you know roots are kind of all over you know like the roots of words and the physical roots of trees yeah. and the generational roots um and making so, your own roots, putting your own, like, like you said, that you need to root down yourself, right? So, yes, yes. So ag and again, this like that we're there's so much work to like get out from under what has been placed upon you from society's hmm. languages, you know, society's language, all, society's many manifestations of telling you who you are, and it's constantly doing that every day. Um, but then of course the, the parents and the, the growing up that way and the needing to bury your own roots. I mean, mm. that, that there's so much of, and I wanted to talk to you about, I mean, you mentioned psychoanalysis throughout the book mm -hmm. and I'm in, and of course that's such an integral part of this journey. And I, and I feel like 
what runs parallel to our poems as is something mm-hmm. it can be that kind of conversation um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um you know I, I i gleaned in the in the poem the psychotherapy poem that that there's been a lot of psychotherapy right um or <laughs> different different psychotherapists this isn't like a brand new thing yeah. um i mean it takes time right uh mm-hmm. and it takes finding the right people to have the conversation with mm-hmm. but you know, and speaking of conversations too, I'll say that the book is rife with conversation as mm-hmm. a very important element to the speaker's understanding of self and what mm-hmm. they don't like to hear and what they mm-hmm. do need to hear and what they say back and all of it. So I'm interested in the idea of conversation, how psychoanalysis has informed your poems or what, what the parallels of those conversations are like. And that, I mean, of course, connects to this type of conversation about roots. Yeah. Um, I think the, the way that I understand what is happening, you know, when we are kind of partitioned out of the oneness into personhood is that, you know, they're kind of given elements of the, the context of origin, the culture of origin, the nation of origin, you know, and that beyond that, we are also taught to believe certain things about ourselves based on who's around and what's happening and what their circumstances are and what they were taught to believe about themselves and that the the idea of self like the idea of it is something that is necessarily collaborative even if it isn't like consciously framed in that way for people that like there are a lot of hands in the shaping of this consciousness and so why wouldn't for me then, you know, I wonder why wouldn't the interrogation of that consciousness or of those identities also involve people, also involve others, especially when the identity markers that are at stake or, you know, central to the inquiry are thought of traditionally as inherited, you know, that like a racial identity is passed down, you know. Um, So I think in that way, you know, it felt like the kind of interpersonal staging of conversation felt uh, not only important, but kind of necessary. Like mm-hmm. when I think about the title poem, you know, the w- the way that for me, I needed two speaking voices who were in orbit of the same question, but at different points in the orbit or standing from two different vantages in relationship to the thing. Totally. Um, I think about like therapy, you know, what's funny about that is that I... I'm just, I'm finishing an interview, uh, like a written interview where I was asked about the therapist in the book and the relationship between therapy and, and poetry, you know, and, and for, for me, they're, they're just so obviously like different, mm-hmm. like in function and objective and yeah. goal, you know, like they are, of course they are not the same, yeah. you know? And it's interesting to think about like what the similarities are, what the, you know, what the overlap is. And, you know, I think what what's interesting too, just like on the poetry side is the way that poems that are like poems that are typically about trauma or emerge from a traumatic event or incident are the ones that are most likely to be critiqued as poetry as therapy or 
you know, written by, in my experience anyway, um, mm. it, you know, this poet is performing their therapy on the page Ugh, sort of it's thing. So it's brutal. Just like, I can't, I get, it's like hard to even hear that, but I, so, I understand it, but it's like, it's so outrageous to me because it's so, it, yeah, it's just, it's a really outrageous position to me. It also feels lazy and mm -hmm. kind of like a failure of imagination. Like maybe the poem, maybe the poet was able to write the poem because they did their therapy and therapy yeah. and now are able, <laughs> right. Right? and now are able to write about this thing at all. But, but so, but the overlaps I think, you know, are to do with speaking by symbol object, like, mm -hmm. you know, um, and what I have found to be true, I, I, and I'm sure there are many more, you know, working from the unconscious, working out of like a languageless place and articulating, mm -hmm. finding the language to articulate, articulate a place that maybe doesn't reside in language. But I think it's, um, I just lost my thread because there's so much happening for me right now. Um, That's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. <laughs> it's such a hot topic yeah. that. Um, well, I mean, they're both dealing with the mind and with your personal experience and with the relational, right? So it's yeah. I mean, you're having a conversation, right? But it's like a, a poem is a highly edited and precise yeah. exercise. You know, it's it's yeah. it's art. It's art, and yeah. It's I think of it as like they run parallel lines or something, you know, mm -hmm. like they, they deal mm -hmm. in the same areas of the brain in terms of of discovery. Um, and they yeah. do so by uh, establishing a frame in, in which to contain yeah. it. Right. So it's like it's more about. It's more. Well, I think. <laughs> I have been thinking lately it's about love and I, and I, mm -hmm. I, I thought of that too. Cause in your book, you start that way. Right. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's almost like you're negotiating difficulties, right. And contrasts yeah. and you do so in the end, really love gets you to tolerate these things. Right. Beautiful. And love for yourself, Beautiful. which that your book, you know, that constantly pops up like, mm -hmm you know, babe, you need to like, love yourself more, you know, like the, the yeah. sort of like, um, you know, trying to figure out how to sit in your own frequency of yourself, you know, like mm -hmm. how to, to love yourself so you can love others. Right. So, sure. or relearn how to love. Um, Beautiful. I love, I love what you're saying, Bianca. Um, I think the, I love love is like a, you know, like a closing or almost closing note to this. But I think mm -hmm. the thing that I wanted to say about my experience as a maker of poems and as someone who has done a lot of therapy in his life is that, you know, that they are different need not mean that they are um, mutually exclusive, yeah. you know, like, and that writing poems, maybe not for publication, is something that perhaps could advance a person's therapy, you know? Mm -hmm. And what I have found to be true is that the the healing work that I have done in my own life in a way that has had nothing to do with poetry, that has happened in contexts that are far from poetry, 
are the spaces and the experiences that have actually most impacted my poetry and poetics. Yes. That like yes. the greatest leaps in my development as an artist have had nothing to do with poetry. It's had to do yes. with like self-concept and Absolutely. deepening consciousness and learning about what the fuck is going on here. Right. You know? <laughs> and then I bring that back to the page and it's just totally different. You know, you're nodding. So I feel like, is that true for you too? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's a byproduct of like, oh, you're like, I'm in therapy and I'm expanding my consciousness and all of a sudden I'm becoming the poet I want to be, right? So it's, it's a hundred percent true. I, I love that so much. I do too. I feel really grateful for it. Yeah. You know, like really grateful. I mean, if you can, if you can tap into it and the gratitude is like kind of overwhelming. It's like, how did I find this like uh, mm. opportunity to expand myself mm. with another? Um, mm. Well, you're doing the work you're doing it. I mean, on the page and clearly off the page and I trace evidence just couldn't be more of a luscious and beautiful book. I have read it three times oh. <laughs> um yeah it's 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 just I, I encourage everyone to get it and it from tin house and um also just beautifully laid out yeah uh, as, as always with them um i was maybe you could send us off with a poem sure um and thank you for the good words that you just said about the book. They are meaningful to me. Um, I say it from the heart. Thanks. How about if you don't, do you have a request or should I just? Why don't, you pick, why don't you pick? Okay. So this is called My People and it's in the first section. My People. I have longed to say my people not because I was born of two peoples, of blue tiled walls and strip malls, not because I don't know where I belong or with whom, or worse, who I am, as onlookers have in their pity proclaimed, the lovers too, after they've exited my body, which they felt emboldened to name. I have wanted to say my people, and to be clear, to all people, to any you imagined by the mind of an embodied you that was also first imagined. I am interested in repair without shame. I am interested in restitution with anger. I am interested in anger as love, in having anyone who hears the phrase see it vanish into the edge of what they know, to know how far I mean it to reach my people as redundancy, as symbol of the first truth, immutable, almost banal in its assertion. If you are on this earth, you are of this earth. What a joy, Bianca. Thank you for this. Thank you a million times. Thank you.
Sharif Shanahan's Trace Evidence is out now from Tin House Books.